Listener Production. Welcome back to Crime Insiders Forensics. This week, more gripping insights into the world of forensic science. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So, I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. This week on Crime Insiders Forensics, the identification of bodies when they're found in complex situations. We could dig a channel and find a skeleton and at the feet there was the head of another skeleton and at the feet of that second one there was the head of another skeleton. A whole line of bodies lined up. Professor Peter Ellis is a forensic pathologist with extensive experience in all aspects of medical death investigation. He's spent decades working in the field, attending crime scenes and gaining a better understanding of how people have died. You'll hear the process and science that goes into forensic work on site, but also when remains are taken back to the lab and what takes place in those closed-off, sealed environments. Peter is taking us back to 1995 and talking us through a case in Sydney involving a deliberately lit fire where eight people were killed. So when I get the call, as I did then, to go to an address in Speed Street in Liverpool, and I was informed from my recollection that there had been a fire in a, an apartment, although it was in a block of apartments, not a huge block, uh, I think it was two or three floors, and that one or possibly more people had been deceased. Um, so obviously I w- went and attended, and my process, of course, is to uh, speak to the officer in charge at the time. And in the situation of a fire, a residential fire, then clearly it's got to be made safe because for anybody to walk through, it's got to be made safe. And that's responsibility of the the, the fire brigade, the fireys as we call them. Um, but once I make contact with the investigating police, usually the scientific police, um, we then will do and did a effectively a walk through the whole uh, scene. That involved walking up some stairs. Clearly, they had been affected by fire. There was extreme damage rung uh, the whole stairwell. Um, and we were actually reached an apartment and walking through that apartment, there was extensive fire damage. And, and it was very obviously there were some deceased persons uh, and it was sometimes quite difficult to tell um, whether that was one, two or three people in one particular place because they were so badly damaged. Also noting that, of course, there were different sizes and it was pretty evident there was probably some children there as well. So that was all part of the process. This is this takes time and one needs to be uh, mindful of, of hazards, but also recording information as you walk through. And essentially, together with the investigating police, we established the fact that there were actually eight bodies altogether, some adults, some children, uh, and the important uh, role 
of not only the pathologist but the crime scene police in a scene like that is to ensure that everything is recorded accurately so that when the remains are removed, as they need to be eventually, the information that is available for them is retained so that each particular set of remains is recorded photographically, is recorded maybe with diagrams and is certainly labelled or numbered in some way. Clearly, we had no idea who these people were. We didn't know names. We didn't know relationships. We didn't know a lot of them, even the sex uh, or the size because they were so badly incinerated. So they're all labelled. They're given unique numbers. Um, and then the remains were physically removed, recording the fact that its individual number was found in a particular location within the apartment. And not only in the apartment, but actually one or two were actually outside on the steps leading into the apartment. And this was of relevance later. Um, and that's not part of my job, but of course the fire investigators would then uh, look at the potential cause of the fire and there was apparently definite evidence that accelerant had been used, um, very probably poured in the steps of the stairwell, uh, maybe further up into the apartment itself. So somebody had clearly uh, done that deliberately. Um, at this stage, there was no way of knowing who that person was. Uh, clearly, it was known who occupied that apartment, so some names were known, but we had to collect information of the, about those individuals so that we could identify those bodies. And that was done uh, largely through uh, dental records uh, with some DNA. They were so badly damaged that fingerprints, which is the other um, the usual identifying feature, was not of any use whatsoever because they didn't have any fingerprints. They were all burnt off. But the uh, dental records were available and the forensic dentists did their usual very thorough job and ultimately we managed to identify uh, all eight victims and uh, as well as doing the autopsy, which was my responsibility, of course, to establish a cause of death, um, I had to collect whatever information I could about those bodies. In the case of an incineration incident such as this, uh, and the fact that all the bodies were obviously badly damaged by fire. The big question is, is it the fire that actually killed them or were they killed by something else and then they, their bodies just happened to be burned? And that's not always easy to find. Uh, it's necessary for me to look for evidence of injuries or anything else that might actually cause death. The majority of, of them were very young or young people the chances of the all dying out of a natural disease is obviously extremely small. So we'd be looking at uh, why seven or eight people would die um, in the fire. And the most likely situation is either that they're overcome by smoke, uh, by the, the bad effects of smoke, or that they are somehow incapacitated and the fire actually burns them. And it may actually be impossible to tell that autopsy between the two, and it's likely that it was a combination. Uh, as part of my autopsy process, I take samples uh, of, of blood and, and other uh, bodily substances to look for poisons, but that also looks for evidence of gas, the sort of things that might be inhaled as a result of the fire. And it was of interest that um, uh, some had small amounts of carbon monoxide. It's a, a gas that 
is probably most people know of as the gas that's produced when you burn a petrol car engine. The carbon dioxide is very poisonous. It doesn't smell of anything. But a lot of them also had cyanide levels in their blood of, of varying amounts. And that's uh, not uh, usually produced by car exhaust, um, but certainly can be produced when you burn plastics and various other uh, artificial products. It is likely that the inhalation of cyanide by those, and most people who had some cyanide in, had come from burning whether it was uh, poly, polyurethane foam or various other plastics that may have been within the apartment. How much of the apartment was actually burnt and destroyed? Was there any part that um, was preserved or was it just completely incinerated? Pretty well incinerated. The, the, the walls were still there, so they, I honestly can't remember how many bedrooms there were, but you could walk from one room to another. The walls were still intact, but there was very little uh, intact um, uh, decoration. Um, there were, for example, I seem to remember there were three bodies that were actually quite difficult to separate because they whether they had... Uh, all gathered together to try and protect each other, uh, maybe near a bed. Um, it, but it's quite difficult to identify things like beds and, and furniture. Uh, there, there was extensive damage within throughout the apartment. And also near the entrance, uh, there was uh, quite a lot of damage to the carpeting, the flooring, and it was felt by police, uh, as, by the fire investigator in particular, that that's where the accelerant had been spread um, and and incinerate and sorry, uh, set fire to. It's an upstairs apartment, and somebody has deliberately set fire That's right. to the That's only right. escape route. What was of particular interest was that one of the victims, one of the eight, um, was a young man um, with, uh, shall we say, a somewhat uncertain police history. The police would have had some suspicions about him. I, I honestly don't know the, the specific details, but one of them, they felt he could have been responsible for setting this fire. This was a 17-year-old male who made threats against the family and had a penchant for fires. That's right. But it so happened that um, he was actually one of the two bodies that was found on the balcony of the apartment, which was the part of the apartment that was furthest away uh, from the likely point of origin. And he also had quite a high uh, level of cyanide in his blood. And I felt, and this had to be supported by police, that um, while, should we say, historically he may have been a significant suspect, from the point of view of the fire itself um, and where he was located, it would seem extremely unlikely that he would set fire to something, then go into the apartment uh, and go to the balcony where there's no form of escape because it's a sort of like a third floor balcony and actually become overcome with quite a high level of cyanide um, and and be deceased there. So I felt that it was extremely unlikely that he was the person responsible for actually starting this. And that prompted the police to, shall we say, look further. And as a pathologist, that's the end of my role. I don't obviously participate in further investigations as who may or may not responsible for fire. That's not my job. That's the police's job. But I believe um, that they they felt that there was someone else who, who as I believe, 
was never actually apprehended. I may be wrong in that, but there was someone else who was possibly responsible for setting the fire. Although playing devil's advocate, the balcony would be one way to watch. Arsonists tend to like to watch their results. Um, They're usually in the crowds watching or offering to help. I wonder if that was a way of watching, thinking he was safe. Yeah, well, it would be unusual to think you're safe from somewhere where the only way to reach safety is to jump off a third floor uh, balcony. Uh, also, having such a high level of cyanide, if, to the extent that it was felt by some people this was so high, they believe there were some police who believed that that level of cyanide was too high to be explained by the burning of, should we say, ordinary plastics within the apartment. I I don't know enough about uh, what happens when you burn plastics to explain that. All I know is that uh, it wasn't the sort of level you get for somebody who swallows cyanide, which is, I guess, the other possibility, but there was no real evidence of that whatsoever. So clearly something has burnt there and probably completely incinerated so isn't left anymore. Um, and he's been around long enough to smell that, and it's, and that's what's killed him. There was also somebody else on the balcony who didn't have such a high level, which tended to exclude the possibility that he was, shall we say, an offender who was out there watching what was happening because there was somebody out there with him. If um, the remains have been incinerated, how do you access blood? Presumably that's been burnt, congealed. Do you go for bone marrow? How do you actually access the blood? The- it all depends on the degree of incineration. Um, so if the skin and the extremities have been badly burnt, um, it may well be that the core of the body, the heart and the major blood vessels deep down aren't, should we say, as badly incinerated. You would go for central blood. You'd go to the heart and the other major arteries or veins within the central part of the body. Normally at autopsy, when we are seeking uh, blood for toxicology, we try to get one of the larger veins, usually the one near the uh, groin, because it's a large vein and uh, the blood is easy to get to. Um, That may be damaged, of course, in this sort of situation, but uh, the the big veins, the heart uh, and the, uh, um, the, the major blood vessels, the aorta and the vena cava inside the body, they may well stay preserved despite the fact that the rest of the body is really badly incinerated. That would be where you'd access the blood. You would access what you can, and it may well be that it looks slightly damaged, and you just note that. Uh, You take what samples are available, um, and you send the sample off to the laboratory, and you record the fact that, shall we say, the blood looked a a little bit affected, um, and you use that observation to consider the result when it comes. So you might consider a result to be inaccurate because they may measure a certain level of a poison or a toxin and you might find that when you come to interpret that, that the blood looked abnormal and therefore you should regard the figure with some scepticism. In this particular case, I don't think that was an issue. I think there was enough, should we say, deep blood 
Um, it's quite difficult to burn a body completely. Um, people, uh, after they die, are often cremated. That's that's part of the normal funeral process, and that's quite a long process. Um, a normal fire, normal house fire, doesn't usually burn that long, and so to get a body completely incinerated in, in the form of producing just ash would be very unusual. So it's not uncommon that the outside of a body will be will look very bad but when you get to open up the body cavities that the the heart um, and the blood vessels inside are at least identifiable and provide you enough sample to be able to be tested in terms of the lungs then if you're looking for a cause of death like whether they died before the fire or because of the fire for example they're inhaling soot they're inhaling those carbon monoxide they're inhaling cyanide is it unusual for there to be enough lung tissue to examine, given that the insides may be preserved? I mean, it obviously varies with the intensity of the fire and also the size of the individual. For example, if you've got a child, uh, as there were in this particular case, that children are likely, because their bodies are smaller, they're likely to become more damaged more quickly. But if you've got a large uh, individual um, who is very solid, and then should we say a lot of core tissue? Then it takes a lot more to uh, uh, should we say heat damage to burn the the inside organs, um, and so it, you can't say as a general rule uh, there's always lung tissue or there's no lung tissue because it's going to depend on the intensity of the fire. It's going to depend on the size of the individual and how long the individual is exposed to that fire. In a lot of cases, there is lung tissue uh, made available and you can certainly see soot. That will tend to only tell you that the individual has breathed soot in, but that can still be, uh, uh, should we say, part of the dying process. So it really doesn't tell you anything other than it is likely the individual was alive at the time the fire was uh, was burning. I vividly remember an awful situation in emergency where a young woman was in a car accident and it caught fire. And the moment the ambulance arrived at the doors, we knew that there'd been a fire because um, it's the sort of pungency that that remains with you and I found really really difficult to get and I still get flashes of it even now years and years later with that and you've got water damage how much does the water suppress those odors if possible and how much does it interfere with your work and what you're needing to document and observe that's going to vary, obviously, from, from case to case. Uh, it potentially can cause damage because the, the water that's used is usually at significant pressure and that can cause some physical damage. But we have to make do with whatever. We, we can't uh, tell the fireys, uh, you can't use water on this because it's going to interfere with my autopsy. That would be entirely inappropriate and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be the right thing to do and it, would, it wouldn't be realistic anyway. So we make do with whatever samples uh, we can. If uh, somebody has died as a result of an intense fire uh, and the fireys have attempted to put it out with high-pressure water, it may well be that they've caused damage um, we have to note that so that when we see a physical injury, we have to decide whether that's been caused by 
some kind of damage prior to the fire, by something happening as a fire itself, or even by something that's happened after the fire, which might include the effects of high-pressure water. The water itself probably isn't going to cause real problem. Theoretically, uh, depending on the samples you take, it might interfere with some of your chemical testing, but it's, it's very unlikely to interfere with blood level, blood tests. So obviously the the first priority is to save lives. It just seems to me it's one of those, another variable that you have to deal with. And it seems like there's a compounding number of variables when you're dealing with a scene from a fire. Um, I wouldn't say that we always get called to fire deaths. It depends very much on the circumstances. If the deaths are uh, in, entirely... Um, should we say, non-suspicious, then we probably wouldn't get some into the scene. I do remember another case where somebody committed suicide by pouring accelerant over themselves and setting fire to it, and I was asked to attend and shown some photographs. And that actually was also very helpful because you could see that the damage was entirely confined to the body itself, and it, I have some quite dramatic photographs of that incinerated body on a floor where the surrounding environment is quite normal. Uh, and that was that's 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 useful um, because it it helps me at least advise the coroner and the investigating police whether anybody else is involved because that's clearly of, mo- of greatest importance to them. So if somebody else were involved, there've been cases of um, men incinerating women, for example, their wives as part of domestic violence, honour killings, whatever people choose to call it. It's still murder. What would you find if someone else had been involved in the pouring of the accelerant? Well, it depends on how badly the body is damaged. If the body is completely incinerated, you probably won't be able to tell anything, uh, and assuming there's no other damage. Um, if there's a line of incinerated material moving away, it may mean that somebody has, has poured accelerant over the individual and, and has then walked away. Um, if there's only partial damage, then the location of that damage might tell you where the accelerant has been applied. If the accelerant has all applied over somebody's back, but it's very unlikely for an individual to do that him or herself. Um, it fortunately doesn't happen too often, but if one is going to set fire to oneself using accelerant, the chances are that you're likely to 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 hold the the the, the receptacle in front of you, or maybe above you, and then pour. And clearly the main burning is going to follow that pattern. If somebody else does it, well, you may not be able to tell the difference. You've done an enormous amount of work with crimes, but also on a mass scale. You were involved in Kosovo and gathering information at critical times for the War Crimes Tribunal. When did you first go? I was first contacted in, I think it was April 2000. Uh, the, the war in that part of the Balkans uh, finished in the latter part of 1999 and the 
War Crimes Tribunal, the ICTY as it's known, the International Commission uh, for the former Yugoslavia was set up. But the British government decided because of other interests to establish some forensic investigations uh, of uh, war crimes in Kosovo and they established a team which they called, uh, interestingly, the British Forensic Team in Kosovo um, in the first part of 2000. And through contacts of people who I knew and who knew me, I was asked to go over in the first deployment. So I fly, flew to London, met up with the professor who was running it, and we then flew through uh, Skopje in Macedonia and then drive, drove up to Pristina, which is the capital of Kosovo. And at that stage, there had been no uh, excavations of uh, mass graves or collection of victims of mass killings in Kosovo at that stage. Additionally, there'd been extensive destruction in Pristina, which is the capital, largely by bombing from Serbia and obviously attempts to fight that back. So the first job was actually to establish the whole process, which included even establishing a mortuary. So we used the facility in the hospital there. And I remember quite distinctively using a couple of rooms that were made available for us to establish a mortuary, which was interestingly, I think on the third or fourth floor of the building, and there was no lift available and issues about how are we going to get bodies up the stairs into the mortuary. The silly little things like that became quite important. I was there for three weeks initially. I came back a, a couple of months later to do some more work. But um, that first three weeks, the first two of those three weeks, were spent entirely establishing the whole process, establishing a mortuary, establishing the process whereby um, bodies are located, exhumed, recorded properly, and then brought back to the mortuary, even to do with their refrigeration. And that was... Uh, I was at that time director of forensic medicine uh, in Westmead in Sydney and uh, as such heavily involved in administration as well because I administered the mortuary at, at Westmead. And, and so the whole process of administering a mortuary uh, was something that I, I had some skills at uh, and it actually really was very useful. But it did really, um, I guess, raise to me the difference between operating in a country like Australia, which is a, a wealthy, peaceful country, where if you want something in your department, your biggest argument is just arguing with, with somebody in bureaucracy for money to do it. But it, it, but it's available. Whereas in somewhere like Kosovo, where there are no rules, where there's they've just had a war, where half the buildings have been destroyed, uh, where there are still military patrols through the streets. You had to try and do the same thing in that kind of environment. It was quite a challenge. And it's a challenge that's really sh stuck with me for the rest of my life in the sense that, that I really appreciate what is and isn't important in life and what you, you, you can and can't do. And I feel we're very fortunate where we live that we have the resources and the peace and the facilities to do that because there are many parts of the world, sadly now there are still many parts of the world where that's not available. But that was a big thing for me for those first two weeks in Kosovo, in Pristina. Uh, also, um, starting the excavation, actually identifying where where bodies were located. The, um, 
the this the people who had done most of the killing, so they're mostly the Serbs at that time who had killed a lot of Kosovo males. They'd taken them away and they'd executed them. But they were aware that there was an international criminal tribunal. So they made efforts to try and hide that process. So they actually buried the remains in a cemetery because they felt, well, people aren't going to go looking in a cemetery for victims of war crimes. And it we knew that that had happened. So we actually spent a lot of time actually in the main cemetery in Pristina. And you could tell, and I have photographs of ground that has been disturbed um, to the extent that it, the, the knowledge about how you identify a recently dug graves um, was really useful information. We, we could dig a channel and find a skeleton uh, lying uh, in that channel and at the, ta- at, the f- at the feet, there was the head of another skeleton. And at the feet of that second one, there was the head of another skeleton. So in other words, you had a whole line of bodies lined up that had been put into that, that trench. And if you looked at those each individual um, set of remains, you found that a lot of them still had blindfolds around the head, despite the fact that there was only bone there. They would dig up whole channels, and when you looked at the surface, you could see there was a long line of disturbed earth. Um, And interestingly, there were some markers on the surface. They were just wooden markers that didn't mean anything. But it was apparent that the uh, people who did the uh, interring had marked them in some way so that we could dig up a whole channel and see this line. Um, that's that's one form of mass grave, and that's done effectively to, uh, I think, unsuccessfully try and hide the process because this is in a cemetery, and the belief is, oh well, nobody's going to look for mass graves in a cemetery because a cemetery is where graves are anyway. I've also been involved in other mass grave excavations, in particular in the from the First World War, where. Um, a large, wide channel was dug and 25 or 30 bodies were just dumped in that grave. And that's probably a more common form of mass grave. So if you bury people, you're the, you've, you've not just desecrated the villages and the, and the men, you now desecrate their ancestral burials as well, the cemeteries. So you must presumably think you're going to get away with it because otherwise would you not take off the blindfolds and the bindings on people's hands, feet and the blindfolds? Well, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I can't pre-think people involved in that situation. I, it, it's, um, I, I, I suspect that they felt that people wouldn't even excavate a a, a bit of dirt in a cemetery because they would assume, oh, people have died and they've been buried there without realising that there are something big. They wouldn't assume that people are actually going to dig those up. At that stage, was a war crimes tribunal interested in identifying people or were they more interested in mass numbers of killings and the number of murders? They were interested in evidence that they could be used against those people who were charged, and that was predominantly Milosevic and Mladic. Um, There were some other smaller, I use the term smaller, uh, individuals, but they were obviously the main uh, people who had been charged. So they needed evidence that 
they as commanders had given the instruction to execute people. So all they needed was the was evidence that people had been executed. So they needed evidence that's that someone um, has had a blindfold on uh, uh, and and uh, arms and legs tied, and they still have th- gunshots because you can see the gunshots, you can see damage to ribs, uh, and there's still some soft tissue there, so you can actually identify that damage. So that's all they needed. They didn't need individual names because we were talking about dozens, maybe even hundreds, maybe even thousands of victims. And that was all that mattered from a mass war war crimes tribunal. That was the war crimes tribunal, um, uh, I guess, priority. Um, It became apparent to us that every one of these victims belonged to a family member, either had a husband, uh, sorry, had a, had a, a wife or a mother or a sister um, or, or other relatives, and that they would want to know what happened to their loved ones. So identification uh, became apparent to us. That was one of the things that we learned while we were out there working. In terms of mass graves, how... Were you directed to them? Did locals know where they were most likely to be or did they know where specifically they were or did you have um, Serbians confessing, admitting to where these locations were or how many possible locations there were? I'd be careful about answering that because I don't know definitely. I believe that we certainly had information from uh, local uh, personnel. I, I have photos of family members who were actually asked to look at particular pieces of clothing and they'd obviously recognised um, the clothing of their loved ones. Um, and they they would have made reference to where they thought these bodies were buried. But I, I don't know. I, I wasn't responsible for establishing the fact that we go to that particular cemetery. It was the biggest cemetery in Pristina. I, I wasn't responsible for that decision, so I can't say absolutely who collected that information. But I would imagine it would have been the local people. I doubt whether the Serbians would have said that. So who was actually in charge of the operation then? That particular operation was a uh, was a small group from the British Foreign Office, um, working with the uh, the the military um, uh, force there, which is called K four Kosovo Force, which was effectively a a group from NATO, because um, there were a lot of uh, international uh, soldiers there. Um, and they were the ones managing it, but the the and as I stress that the the British government set up this first operation, but the International War Crimes Tribunal had another operation as well, also in Kosovo, and they had a separate mortuary elsewhere in uh, in Kosovo, which uh, they were involved in setting up and, and operating. And I worked there a couple of years later uh, when I returned to Kosovo to do some more work. So the difference there, I know you've been involved with Framel as well and you talked about mass war graves in France. What is the difference as opposed to somebody being executed, a whole group of people being executed and put in a mass grave? When you're talking about war combat and someone's collected up the people who've died in combat and then buried them collectively, um, Frommel was a, a different situation in that it resulted from the Battle of Frommel, which was in July 1916, 
um, which was a major battle that the British, uh, using Australian soldiers as well, um, actually uh, attempted to divert German resources away from the Battle of the Somme. And so it was a major battle, but it wasn't well managed. Uh, and it was pretty well a disaster as far as the uh, Allies were concerned. And large numbers of uh, Allied soldiers were killed, in, in particular Australian soldiers, of course. It was the worst single day of Australian uh, uh, military casualties ever. Um, but a large number of those victims were actually killed behind the front line, actually in German territory. And so their remains were never actually located and so there's a large number of people who are known to have died in that area, but nobody knew where their bodies were. And so there have been a number of groups who have set upon themselves to, to try and investigate where those bodies were located. And they used various methods, including satellite imagery, uh, as well as Red Cross records. And they established uh, uh, an area near the small village of Fromel. Um, it's a place called Pheasant Wood, which, as the name suggests, is a wood where there appear to be some mass graves, and they're visible on a, a satellite imagery. And um, the uh, a, a, a group called Guard, which is the Glasgow University Archaeology Research Division, actually did a a, a small mission to Pheasant Wood and did a little bit of a dig and found uh, some bones and found some buckles and even rising sun badges in the ground. And they realized that there were bodies buried there. And so a task was set by a combination of the British and Australian governments to actually do a, a mass grave excavation in that area. It was properly established by a, a large archaeology firm. It's called Oxford Archaeology. Um, who were uh, uh, contracted? Uh, they they do a lot of archaeological excavations throughout the UK and through Europe as well. And they uh, set up a program to identify uh, mass graves uh, in that region um, using that initial uh, sampling information that they got from Guard. Uh, I was the consulting pathologist to that group. And interestingly, uh, the information that we had was that there were likely to be several hundred bodies uh, interred in that area. We didn't know exactly where. We didn't know exactly how many graves. We didn't know where those uh, bodies had come from, whether they were British or whether they were Australian or possibly New Zealand or, or other nationalities because they had some other nationalities as well. And as part of my role as a consulting pathologist, I did a bit of research here in Australia. I remember going to the War Memorial in Canberra and uh, finding out some interesting information about uniforms. Uh, interestingly, British uniforms differ from Australian uniforms. And that was useful because when you inter a decomposed body, that the only thing that's left is a uniform. It tells you whether that body is likely to be British or Australian. And that certainly worked. Um, so... In, during the, I think it was 2009, um, a program was set up where uh, a number of archaeologists, anthropologists, uh, actually did these ex excavations and they established that there were in fact eight mass graves, big trenches, and in each of those trenches there were 
anything from two or three up to 50 bodies. They were all skeletons, of course, because it's over 100 years. Um, but there was other, various other paraphernalia there. So there would be crucifixes and belt buckles and remains of shoes, as well as uh, skeletons. And so it was a very complex process that was uh, uh, conducted to excavate those remains. And the idea was to excavate them, to identify them, and to bury them in a cemetery. And that's what what's what was done. Two hundred skeletons, sorry, two hundred and fifty skeletons were excavated. What about the dog tags? Surely that would be the most obvious way to identify people um, when every soldier wore them for that specific reason. No, under normal circumstances, absolutely right. Um, the Germans had removed all dog tags and other identifying paraphernalia from all the all the, the soldiers who they shot. I mean, this was part of a battle. It wasn't, uh, I won't say this was murder. This was part of a, a World War I battle. Um, and they had um, sent those dog tags and other identifying material to the Red Cross, specifically to say, um, you know, please inform the relatives of these uh, people that they've died in battle, um, which they did. Quite a lot of the information actually came from the Red Cross because they record that kind of information. Um, of course, what that does do is, is remove the identifying material from the remains itself. And so uh, we, we, we needed to do identifications um, without that, that normally useful identifying paraphernalia. So in a way, it was a humane thing to do, to send to people to try and alert their relatives. But then down the track, identifying individuals, it's obviously made it far more complicated. That's exactly right. And the the uh, the remains were mostly identified through DNA. At, and with DNA, you compare the DNA from the human remains itself ideally with a sample from the person who might have left a sample either in on a toothbrush or a comb or somewhere. Um, but in this case, that was not always possible because, of course, these people died 100 years ago and there wasn't necessarily going to be a lot of their specific DNA available. But you can actually do familial matching. We get our DNA from our parents, of course, um, and so there will be a, a mixture, shall we say, of our parents' DNA in our own. And so um, DNA biologists can do what's called familial matching. It's something that's very, very prominent these days um, and is something that's been very useful. Uh, it was extremely useful and continues to be useful with the Fromel incident uh, in the sense that although that excavation was in 2009, there are still people being identified. In other words, skeletons are still being identified to this day. Uh, and usually on Anzac Day, um, uh, uh, there is an announcement of a number of new identifications. And uh, I remember seeing just this year in uh, 2023, there was another seven further soldiers from the Fromel excavation were identified entirely through familial matching. How much does it matter to the families today, do you think, that their um, two or three generations removed um, family member is identified? 
it matters a lot more than I realized. Um, a few years after the operation, uh, when the cemetery at Fromel was um, established and finished, because all the skeletons that had been excavated were reinterred in a cemetery nearby, each one with a gravestone. And those with the gravestones of someone who'd actually been identified actually had their name on the gravestone. And quite frequently, there was a message from a family member on that gravestone. Uh, and I walked through the cemetery, I think about four or five years later, and read some of those gravestones. And um, it was it's quite a sobering and emotional moment to realize that there are people who... Uh, who would never have known the soldiers personally because they were separated by a hundred years, but felt close enough to them that they, they might have been great uncles or great grandfathers or uh, relatives, and they would actually make comment uh, comments like, um, "Was once lost, now found." Um, we never stopped looking. V various comments like that. They were clearly quite emotional and realised to me, the importance of doing identifications, even after 100 years. You might think that after 100 years, um, no one really cares, but families very much do. It's very important for them. We can't help those that have gone, but we can help who's left behind. So if somebody has a relative who they don't believe has been identified yet, where can they go to potentially offer their DNA, their familial DNA? The Australian Defence Force has a unit which they, uh, it's called, I think, the Unrecovered War Casualties Unit. Um, and it's not only for Fromel in World War One, but it's for Vietnam and for other uh, conflicts that this country has been involved in. And they're very active. And they they obviously operate out of Canberra uh, through the ADF uh, headquarters in Canberra. And they have... Uh, a very active process whereby they will collect whatever information, including DNA, if it if it's necessary, um, and they will they will take that further so that um, there are operations in Papua New Guinea and various other parts, particularly Southeast Asia, where Australian Defence Force personnel may have been. Um, and if they haven't returned, those remains um, are examined by, particularly by anthropologists um, and archaeologists who are assigned to the ADF. Um, and that unit exists specifically um, to assist in that identification. On that note, with a little bit of hope for relatives, I'd like to thank you very much, Peter, for joining us today. I know you've had a really extensive career and you've done a lot of volunteering for international organisations as well and I just wanted to thank you thank for you, that. Thank you, Cathy. You're very welcome. Very much. It's been a privilege for me. Uh, I found it uh, professionally very challenging but very rewarding. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly.